0: Hello, I'm Julia Samuel. I'm a grief psychotherapist and I've worked in the NHS and private practice for the last 25 years. I've just written a book called Grief Works, which is stories of life, death and survival. And part of the purpose of the book is to begin to get us to talk more about both death and bereavement and the grieving process. Um, and I've got Victoria Milligan here, who I worked with um, a few years ago, and she's going to tell you a bit about her story.
1: Yes, hi. Um, I met Julia after a very tragic accident that befell myself and my family. we were down in Cornwall on the May Bank holiday in 2013 enjoying a lovely family weekend um, and we had a, a boat down there, a speed boat that my husband and I love taking the children out on and this that morning the morning of Sunday the 13th of May started like any other morning down there beautiful day took the kids out on the beach, decided to take the boat out on the estuary and went over for a little takeaway, ricksteins, Rick Stein's fish and chips in Padstow and took the boat up and down the estuary with the sun shining on our faces and on our backs and the children screaming with joy and laughter. It was a, a perfect family day out and none of us knew how it would end in such horror. We were coming back into our mooring in Rock um, because I was very conscious the tide was going out and I'd taken over the controls briefly as um, Nico was playing with some of the children at the front, and it was very nervous about turning around again. One of the children had said, ''Let's go around again, let's go around again.'' And um, reluctant as I was, Nico tried to help me make the turn, and for one reason or another, the boat reared up into a horrendous, massive G-force wheelie, really, we found out afterwards, and the six of us were ejected um, very quickly from the boat in a split second, none of us really knowing what was going on. Unfortunately, the kill cord hadn't been attached so the boat. The first image I saw as I surfaced in the water was the boat speeding away from us and going into the first of many high-speed turns, coming back at us in the water and hitting us again and again. I don't remember a huge amount except for my son screaming, no more cold water, mummy, no more cold water. He was four, so I went over and tried to swim away from what I thought was the, the turn of the boat to the nearby beach, soon realising that you can't swim very much in a wetsuit or a life jacket. I don't know what anybody else was. The roar of the engine was silencing anybody else's screams. I presumed it was just Kit and I, really, that were in trouble. Um, I could see the boat going round. I could hear Amber close to me, kind of saying, Daddy's dead, Daddy's dead, not believing anything that horrendous could have happened on this this perfect day. And then I turned to see the boat coming towards Kit and I and felt the hull of it hitting my chest, but what I didn't feel was the blade of the propeller cutting my leg and Kit's. We were soon uh, rescued by the RNLI, the boat was stopped by an incredibly brave RNLI crew member who raced after it in the RNLI speedboat and jumped onto our boat to um, stop the boat. And we were taken to Dereford Hospital, um, which was the closest trauma hospital to um, North Cornwall. I think I did know in the back of my head after hearing Amber that my husband, Nico, had died. But what I couldn't quite even contemplate was the fact that my daughter Emily wouldn't have made it either. She wasn't in the helicopter with us and I just presumed that maybe that was for the most injured people and that she would be meeting us there. She'd be in a different ambulance. But it was only later when a very kind um, and sad policeman came up to tell me that she had also died in the accident. So no one can quite prepare you for being told that your husband and daughter had both died very suddenly and that I was then about to go into theatre to have my leg amputated. So as you can imagine, pretty horrendous situation and one about a month afterwards was when Julia Samuel walked in to my hospital room in St Mary when I was, as you can imagine, completely lost and I don't know what your memories of me that day were but... I remember still being very lost and angry and fearful and not knowing what to do. I mean,
0: just hearing you say the story again, I can sort of feel my tummy turning over, That the horror of it and how out of a clear blue sky something so devastating could happen. And, you know, it's the sort of story that you read and, and I remember reading it the weekend it happened. Um, and being horrified then. And I obviously didn't know I was going to meet you. And so when I got the message that um, you needed support and that you were at St Mary's where I have my post, I I have a bit of that feeling now. I felt very scared, actually, because I wanted to come and help you and I wanted to support you very much. I really felt for you. And I was worried that maybe I wouldn't know how, or you know, how could I cope? What would it be like? And I remember knocking on the door, coming into your um, bedroom at St. It wasn't a bedroom, is it? It's a hospital room <laughs> at St. Mary's, and um, feeling that kind of awkwardness of talking about something so profoundly intimate with someone who's never met me before. Um, I don't know what you
1: remember. I think you're right. I think I I remember you walking in and I remember feeling very conscious that I had never had any therapy before and I think that's probably the same with a lot of people going through grief. I think a lot of people who do experience grief have probably never had therapy before in their life or had to talk to a complete stranger about their innermost personal emotions and even though I'm 45, I was 41 at the time, So I wasn't born before 1960, and I know you say in your book that a lot of people born before that time do find it very difficult to express their emotion because they've been brought up with the whole stiff upper lip and kind of just move on and bury it under the carpet, and I'm, I'm not part of that generation. But I do remember thinking, well, all I want at this moment is for Nico and Emily to come back, and you can't do that, so I don't need to speak to you, because I do not see how you can possibly help me. And that, and I very much remember thinking that and sort of almost dismissing you. I don't know if dismissing you is the right word and I didn't mean to be rude, but it was like, I don't understand what you're doing here. I don't understand how you can help me. So not please leave because you were very lovely and we remember having a very nice conversation, but there was no point of you kind of being part of my journey and it's only later when you come I came out of the you know initials of shock and worry that I realized I needed help maybe not so much for me at the time but almost for my children and how to speak to them and you could help me with the very difficult and painful conversations and questions that they were asking me um, that I could not answer them on my own and that I needed help from you with how to answer a question of, you know, did daddy feel pain when he died? Who's going to walk me down the aisle now? You know, all sorts of, when am I going to get a new daddy? You know, from the unbelievably painful to the sort of very matter of fact questions that children come out with out of the blue. And I was very unprepared how to answer them and I was very conscious that I had to answer them in the right way and to help them, as you say, you know, it's all about getting the right help at the right time when you're grieving and I know that you could teach me the right sort of strategies on on how to deal with my children so that was very much when I realised that I I desperately did need your help and and I wanted you to come back and and hold my hand almost through the whole process. Mm. I mean, it's so
0: true that feeling at the beginning, isn't it, you know, of course, me and nobody else can give you what you most want, which is the person that's died back. Mm. And so it feels completely pointless to do anything or talk yeah. about anything. Talking isn't going to bring it back. And there's mm. a... I remember a kind of fury that you felt. And um, and my job, really, is is to acknowledge that, to allow you to have that fury, because mm. that fury is an expression of of hurt it's like screaming ow and actually the kind of most one of the most difficult parts of grieving is really allowing yourself to feel the pain to really allow yourself to know that it is this bad and it is this terrible Mm. and you can only do that a little bit at at a time Mm. and I was very aware with you that a way in to build a relationship with you was, was going to be about supporting your children. And the work that would allow you to do that effectively was to build um, trust where I could let you... I could acknowledge what you were feeling and I was going to try and pull you out of it because I think... I mean, you had fantastic friends. I was always so impressed by how much support you had. But they would always try and make you feel better. And I think I was the place where I would let you feel your pain and I'd sit with you in it. Mm. Um, And then the other things that you've been talking about now is is about children and the importance of truth with children and instinctively wanting to protect children from the pain of their loss and the devastation of it, which you kind of don't want it to be true for them even more than for yourself.
1: But I think you're right. I think at the beginning I... I mean, mine was obviously an incredibly sudden loss and obviously there's a lot of different types of losses, but for me, the rug was completely pulled away from underneath me, having been a very happily married mother of four on that morning and then suddenly being a bereaved parent and a single parent, a widow and an amputee by the evening was obviously, for me, I just thought too much for anybody to bear and that there's no way that I could possibly do that. And I think going through a sudden loss, I remember even being in the water thinking okay, so I can do this, you know, we'll kind of just put it all back together, we'll sell the house, we'll move on. You almost want like a a very quick fix, an immediate plaster on the wound and then let's sort of move on and and it will all be fine. And it takes a while to realise that that is absolutely not the case. You really have to work through every pain and bit of emotion that you are feeling. And I love that analogy in your book about the bits of paper that you rip up and your job as a therapist is to deal with... Each individual bit of ripped up paper and, and, and you know, put it back together again, put the person back together again and, and heal them through that way because you have to work through. For me, it was the obviously the fury, as you say, like, how on earth could this have happened to us? How dare this happen to us? This, the rage. I remember that. It's like fucking yes, hell, exactly. Oh my I life. I know. I remember this isn't swearing me. a lot in your yeah. office, actually. And, <laughs> yeah. But you allowed me to do that. Whereas, you know, my friends, as you said, would very much have the opinion that I think they wanted to leave and think, well, I've made Victoria feel a lot better now, so I've done my job. And which obviously, is their job. Which it is their, their job. job. But as you know... Your job as a grief cancer therapist, your job is to allow us to feel what we're feeling at that time. And if I don't want sometimes I did want to be made to feel better. Sometimes I totally wanted to forget that this horrendous experience had ever happened to me and that I wanted to have a glass of wine and a laugh and forget about everything. And that was their job. And I remember you saying to me, that is totally allowed. And if you don't want to talk about it, don't talk about it. Have a holiday from it. You know, it's so boring having to talk all the time about this is what's happened. Yes, Kit's leg is saved. Yes, he's had his... 12th operation and you know it's just constantly talking about something sad all the time and I remember you saying you know go out and change the subject just say and how are you and how are your children and that was such amazing advice because it allowed me to have a brief respite from the pain and the agony that I was going through on a very day-to-day basis so that was that was incredibly useful but going back to the beginning in the in the hospital I had to work through Hideous emotions, which for any human being are horrible to face, and it's much easier to just kind of bury them and think I'm not going to deal with it. A lot of it, also, I suppose, was the sort of trauma of the accident that I'd been through, the guilt, which I know I remember you saying everyone that has lost someone, particularly a child, goes through the guilt of thinking I was their parent and I should have been able to save them. And that, for me, was and probably is always going to be a horrible emotion. You have to work through the pain of that and understanding that it was an accident. It was a a horrible, perfect storm of events on that day that that horrendous thing happened to us and it wasn't my fault. But it took a lot of work and a lot of sessions with you to stop the constant video loop in my head of the boat Going round and round, and me standing up and shouting at myself in my dream to say, Sit down, sit down, don't turn the boat around, just head back to shore, head back to shore. And I think that was probably one of the most useful parts of our sessions to actually spend the time of going through that because I have accepted now that what happened was an accident. And I know a lot of grief, and you know, you talk about this a lot, is accepting what's happened. And that is the only way that you are going to be able to move on and find joy again in your life. And, and I'm very grateful to you for giving me the time that we've worked through the, the, the hideous emotions of sadness and, and longing and desperation to say goodbye to them and, mm. and hold Emily again and stroke her hair again and kiss Nicko one last time. And, you know, for you to take the time for me to do that was, you know, i always be very, very grateful to you for doing that with me.
0: Well, I felt very, um, you know, the fact that you could be so open with me is, felt like a, uh, a gift to me. Um, there's always reciprocal uh, gifts in these things. It's sort of two-way. Um, and I'm so aware of guilt, you know, because you can't argue somebody out of guilt, and it felt like, as you were talking then, I could really hear and remember that battle between your head and your heart, like your head knew it was a tragic accident and your heart felt guilty. And we couldn't argue a way out of that. We had to find a way for you that you'd find a way of living with it, which, as you say now, you're, you're finding a way of doing now. That There's always that feeling you know, there's a kind of wound there, isn't there, that doesn't go away. No. But the intensity of it has changed, that you... I mean, what's so cruel about grief, I think, is that people often turn the attack on themselves. Yeah. And one of the things that I try and encourage is for people to be self-compassionate, to be a bit kinder to themselves. And with you, it was letting you give yourself permission to both feel the guilt but also... Not to self-attack and to allow yourself to feel joy, and it's a bit about, and that's incremental, isn't it? As you were talking, definitely, it's you can't just flick a switch and say, right, I'm going to be fine. No,
1: no, and you do, you end up, you know, I was almost punishing myself for the loss, as if I hadn't been punished enough, really, of losing my future with my incredible, you know, lovely family that I had, and we do just find a way of just blaming ourselves for it. And, of course, for me, I didn't have Nico there either. I mean, you know, maybe I would have blamed him, I do or we would have shared the blame. And I think, you know, the examples of losing a child in your book are very much dealing with it as a couple and how difficult it is and how, you know, the, the man and the woman often um, grieve differently. You know, for me, suddenly it was just on my own, having to look after the children who were grieving as well. So I was... I was so lost and I probably don't really realise how lost I was at the time um coming to your sessions and, and how I just needed someone who wasn't a friend that I could be incredibly open with, talk about any innermost emotion which I might not even have wanted to admit to people about how angry I was with Nico, you know, and it's it's a horrible emotion to be angry with someone who's died mm. and how at the beginning I wish that it had been me that had died and not him that he didn't have to feel any of this horrible pain and have a future looking after the, you know, three bereaved children as well. And it's a horrible admission and I felt so guilty about feeling that as well at the beginning. But you helped me work through I suppose the word is the normality of what I was feeling. And as you say, Actually I would leave and you would notice a change in me week on week which I wasn't seeing and that gave me a huge amount of confidence because even though I might have thought I was going backwards or that I wasn't grieving properly, not that there is a right or wrong way to grieve, but you would say, you know, you're doing so well. You really are. You know, you'll really work through that emotion from last week. Think about how you were feeling a month ago and I can see such a change in you. And for me, having that almost kind of Pat on the back of and that reassurance that you are moving forward with your grief, even though you don't feel like it, you feel like you were a standstill, was hugely important to my sort of journey through through the pain of what I was feeling um, and I think that's important for anybody isn't it to have as you say that that compassion and the other thing that was hugely important and helpful for me was not to feel guilty about having a good time yeah. Because we've been through something so painful and so dreadful. So horrendous. That you do feel guilty yeah. about when you enjoying yourself. I first smiled,
0: I remember yeah. I first laughed with my mates. It was in the garden, wasn't it, that summer with yeah, your girlfriends. Exactly. And it was my birthday. Um, and it was your was birthday.
1: A couple of months after the accident and they brought a bottle of wine and champagne round and I remember thinking, why on earth has someone bought a bottle of champagne? And and she said, because you are here, because you have survived. You are here to look after those children. And it was so emotional. And I think we'd all been, we'd had this pent up emotion, all of us inside for you know the last two, three months that we laughed until we cried. We were on the floor, our stomachs, ached with laughter, and at the time it felt so odd, like we were just sitting out on a beautiful summer's evening drinking champagne, but to allow ourselves to feel that the contrast between the, the pain and the guilt and the anger, to have an evening of joy gave me a sense of what I could potentially have in the future yeah, again. Give you a
0: taste of what your future...
1: Because it's so complicated,
0: isn't it, when you were talking about the sort of... This isn't the right word, but it's almost like there was competitive grieving for Nico and Emily and I mean I remember the beginning your preoccupation was with Emily because that felt so devastating it was the death of her future that you grieve for and the hope for her as a child you should never bury your own child and in some ways that knocked out, I don't think that's the right word but it's sort of Nico
1: got lost in it it just felt more tragic. I think the death of a child is just, you know, they're part of you. You know, I gave birth to her. She was half of me. Yeah. Nico was my husband and I loved him enormously. But she was was part of my body, yeah, you know, not just my soul. Embodied but in you. yeah, Totally. So you do, you grieve... Um, Her, you grieve for the future, her potential, but also your future that I should have been having with her. I should have seen her grow up. I should have seen her get married and have children. And, you know, Nikkei, however sad it was being suddenly killed at the age of 51, had had an incredible life. And yes, it was tragic. But for me, Emily's death was more tragic because she hadn't. She'd had a joyous life, but she'd only had eight and a half years on this planet. And it was too young and too small. And, you know, you do always just feel guilty as a parent that I should have been there to stop it. And I now look back at Nico's life and I think he was a very happy, contented man who I think felt had reached contentedness in his work life and his home life. And I look at him now and of course I'm incredibly sad that I don't get to spend the rest of my life with him but I'm happy for him that he died at a good moment in his life. He wasn't trying to strive for more, you know, he'd really made it and we had had an incredible 15 years together and I'm grateful that I had experienced true love. I don't know if I'll ever experience that again but I experienced what it was to be married to a wonderful amazing man and I think what's interesting in your book as well is talking about is it harder and I've often thought this would I have wanted just two more years with her or is it easier losing a a child at at birth or a child that's eight like Emily was or a child that's 18 that's died through an alcohol related accident you know I would have done anything to get another 10 years of her actually another day another day you know and Would I have wished that I'd known from day one that I was only going to have eight and a half years with her and would I have appreciated every single moment with her? I just think the answer is, you know, of course nobody knows, it's all relative and whatever age you lose a child is always going to be a a tragic and I think the worst type of grief that you have to go through really, isn't it? I, I mean, I think it is because it's so...
0: You know, everybody says on one level rightly that there isn't a hierarchy of grief. One thing isn't worse than another. But I think there's something about it being the reverse of nature and the reverse of the opposite of the future that we expect um, that has a particular devastation. As you were saying there, you know, Nico had fulfilled a lot of his dreams. He'd lived a lot of his life. You know, he'd found love. He'd been in love. And you're grieving that Emily never got to fall in love, never got to be married, never got to be a parent. And this... And an enormity in that, yeah. That and you're just
1: seeing a glimpse of the the potential. woman that she would have been mm. turning into, and the incredible teenager. And and I think also every sort of milestone is enormous. So her friends leaving prep school, you know, that last day year six, she's not there amongst them when she should have been starting the same school as her sisters are at. You know, all of that is just so deep rooted and in in sadness that that she and loss of potential that she should be there. And the the gaping hole she leaves in our lives and and her siblings' lives. It's very, very hard. And part of my grief at the beginning, I think, definitely as a parent, you are the bottom of the, the rung of sort of importantness. So, you know, and I remember thinking that you were there to help me, not through my own grief, but through the children's grief and trying to, you know, look at poor little Olivia who was almost attached at the hip to Emily coping with not having someone to play silly games with or run around in the garden with and that was you know so incredibly difficult to cope with and now three and a half almost four years on I will always say that I've had four children. It's a very very difficult question when people say to you how "How many many children do you you have?" have and I know you touch on that as well because it's you feel like you're lying if you say three, but then you're throwing up a whole raft of difficult conversations if you say you have four, but then one died and that and then people get very nervous now oh, I'm so sorry and but you don't want to betray her for pretending that she never existed because of course she existed in your life and it's a very difficult question, and I think a lot of bereaved parents probably struggle with that question going forwards because, as you know I said at the beginning, we
0: feel frightened of death or talking about death and we feel so ignorant and what I'm hoping by our conversation today is that we give people the confidence to not run away from it and kind of I mean you must have had lots of experiences of people hearing your story and being very awkward and kind of getting themselves out or crossing the side of the street or um and actually People need people, and you just need people to acknowledge it, to be able to say, I'm so sorry that happened to you. They don't need to fix it because it's not fixable. They don't need to come up with some magic sentence that makes everything okay. They just need to acknowledge it. And if we can get that message across, it would save a lot of injuries. I mean, a lot of clients that I've had over these 25 years, something that emerges again and again is the hurt and rage people feel with how other people respond to them. And they don't want that to be in their headspace. They want to be thinking about the person that's died. But actually at the school gate or meeting someone for lunch or meeting a stranger at work or whatever it is, they can't help but get re-injured by how people respond. And people don't mean to get it wrong. No, they they don't.
1: And I remember you saying, you know, actually that, you know, if someone does say the wrong thing, actually just don't take it personally. They don't know what to say. It's um, almost be piece of sympathetic with them in a way. But you, you're right, you just want to acknowledge. You don't want someone... You can't pretend that it hasn't happened because it has happened. And especially at the beginning, of course, Nico and Emily still felt incredibly present to me. And I did want to talk about them. And I did want her name mentioned and discussed you know what she liked doing and what food she liked and restaurants she liked going to and if someone said something like oh we're going to pizza express which she would have loved to go they go oh my gosh I'm so sorry I'm so sorry but it's you know you almost need to kind of give people the permission and say it's totally fine they still feel very much part of my life and they always will do and I don't want you to pretend they never existed you know let's talk about them Even Mm. if you feel slightly awkward talking about them, I don't. And I'm the one that's sad. And, you know, sometimes you feel yourself in a ridiculous situation of consoling other people for the loss of your Your husband and your child. It's kind of like, no, no, this is definitely worse for me. Um, (laughs) But then it's not about you. And there's been a lot of times I know I've talked about this with you and that people have to remember. It is not about them, you know. You are helping your friend or your relative or your work colleague go through something incredibly, incredibly painful. And even if you were very, very close to the person that's died, you know, you are not the inner nucleus of grief. You are actually the support group. And remember that it is not your your pain is much less to whatever your friends or your relatives is going through. Um, But it is that sort of just acknowledge it. If you bump into someone in the supermarket, don't walk around the next aisle which I've had people do because yeah. we are going to see you don't yeah. cross the pavement um to talk to us come, and come give you a up hug. give me a hug even if I burst into tears and it might be really embarrassing and my shopping trolley goes everywhere give me a hug and just say I am oh, so, so sorry for your yeah. loss I'm so sorry for what's happened to you and then maybe drag me for a coffee. And I suppose the other thing that or let me not talk about it and get on with my yeah. shopping it doesn't really matter. Exactly. Yeah. Or if I say to you not now you're yeah. not just about holding it together. <laughs> I don't, do don't this to talk me. about it now. Yeah. Uh, but let's meet later or something. Mm. And the other thing that I think was really helpful to me is when people say, you know, is there anything I can do? And at the time you might not be able to think of anything cuz you're Mind is so overtaken by grief and your to-do list was literally I could do about one thing at a time rather than ten that I normally could is just keep texting us if you're going to the supermarket yeah. just say, actually, I'm just going so is there anything I can, can get, get you? Them. or Practical. Practical, 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 yeah. And
0: doing it rather than saying what would you like me to do which you then have to reply to. Right? Yes,
1: taking something off your to-do list rather <laughs> yeah. than kind of putting something onto, onto your to-do list. Yeah, I think that's really important as well.
0: Because the thing that you were talking about Um, with emily and nico which i don't think fully people understand i think there's still an old school attitude is that it's not about forgetting and moving on it's about remembering and finding a way of living with the fact that the person you love has died Mm. and so you when you were talking then about emily's birthdays and her future birthdays and that you're so grateful when people let you talk about her, when you let people let you remember her. Or Nico. I mean, I've met a lot of Nico's friends. We do this wonderful golf day that you've done for CBUK. And they love remembering him that day. They always remember the jokes. So there's a sort of... There's a tear... There's like men, you know, slap on the back. You can only do grief with sport. Uh, That's true. You can't do proper grief. So they kind of make jokes about Nico but there's tears in their eyes and you know the 100 men who would never cry about anything mm. come together and it's very it's very very touching but it is that remembering and grieving is a is an important thing Yeah isn't
1: it? you're right because they were both a huge part of obviously mine and my family's life Nico was a huge part of his work colleagues life and you know you forget it's not just you actually that is hugely missing them but all their friends their work colleagues, everybody and it's a big pool that gets rippled a big isn't it? pool and you know as you said we've organised this annual golf day for his very close friends to remember him, it doesn't have to be something as formal as that but to get together and have an opportunity to share stories and jokes and you know what you know, Nico used to kind of always smuggle a bit bar of Cadbury's into his <laughs> golf bag and not share it with anybody and always play yeah. with a yellow golf ball. And actually what's sweet when we go to their grave down in Cornwall is there's always a yellow golf ball on the grave that's is been there? signed by somebody, oh. which is lovely. So it's just, as you say, having them, they were such a huge part of our lives that in a way their death doesn't have to stop them being a huge part of your life. They can carry on being part of your life if you let them. Mm. If you let yourself... At the beginning, of course, it's incredibly hard to let them be part of your life because every time you think about them, you cry. But that's a normal emotion because it is sad that they're no longer with you. But what I think I've learned to do with your help is let them be part of my life. And even though sometimes I'll still shed a bit of a tear, it now brings me joy to think about them Mm. and joy to think about memories that we've had together or favourite restaurants that we've been to. And I think for for myself and the children, we'll often sit around and say, you know, if we were in a restaurant, what would Nico have? Obviously, always going to be the breaded chicken because he would normally <laughs> order a child's meal. Um, and chicken nuggets, chicken nuggets and chips. And um, what would Emily have? You know, what would he like doing now? And on their birthdays, we we still make Emily her favourite chocolate cake. And yeah. even the first two birthdays it was horrendous yes. that she wasn't there to eat it, now she, she's you know, lovely part of our part of our life and part of our future going forward. And doing our new house, we're going to have Nico's big old leather armchair there that we can all snuggle into together and remember. Him. We're going to have. I found a big canvas of a kind of retro jar of peanut butter, which Emily was the only one that ate it. So that's going to go up in our kitchen. So they are always going to be part of our lives going forward, and and that's the way it should be. Yeah,
0: it's very touching that that there's kind of touchstones to them, which are not just kind of photographs or going to his grave with with the golf ball, but actually things that represent them, like the leather armchair yeah. or the or the um, peanut butter. And I guess you probably carry things with you or wear things all the time. I wear my necklace
1: necklace all the time, yeah, that um, has Emily's little charms in it. And she's with me. Connects you to her. She's with me every day. And I remember you saying that to me at the beginning, wear something of hers. But obviously, because of course she was so young, there was her really annoying swatch watch that ticked too loudly, (laughs) um, which I did wear for a while. But um, you're right, you need to have them as part of your future because it's too sad just being the four of us going from six to four was such a shock and so sad that you still need to be part of feel that you're part of a six that they're with Mm -hmm. us going forward but I think now almost four years on, it's having that balance between also realizing that we do need to have a future as well that in our hearts, but obviously without them present all the time, and that we all need to to move forward a little bit with our with our lives as well, but always having a connection with them. So the thing I love about you moving forward—I
0: mean, I think anyone listening to you will hear that you have a kind of kick-ass attitude too, which serves you well. I mean, it—you know—and I remember saying that to you at the beginning: is that you know you were devastated, you couldn't have felt more pain, but you also have this kind of I'm going to survive. <laughs> I will survive. <laughs> and p- one of the things I love is your different legs.
1: Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, so, yeah. So, yes, obviously I did lose my leg. and Which it um, becomes
0: almost nothing. I mean, no. for some people, if that's all they'd lost, it would be like, oh, my God, I've lost my leg. Exactly. But for you, it was almost like a sort of
1: bracket. Just another thing to <laughs> cope <laughs> with. But it was so far down my list of losses that I didn't really even... You know, everyone said, you have to grieve for your leg. I was like, well, no, I don't really, because I'm grieving for my husband and my daughter, and that's actually way more important. Um, yeah, so for me, I had to learn to walk again and obviously spent quite a long time saving Kit's leg. But, you know, and OK, it's not ideal having a prosthetic leg, but for me... As you say, if it had happened without everything else, it would have been the worst thing imaginable. Then you're if, a fitness trainer, so I mean, yeah, exactly. As a fitness trainer, I'm still a fitness, fitness. trainer. Yay. I still have a blade now, and I run my ten ks. And for me, it's been a very important part of my grieving process. Actually, tell us
0: about your different. I love that you
1: have different <laughs> legs for different things. My different legs. So actually, I did an assembly at Kit School, who's eight recently, and I took in my different legs, um, and of course, they were all fascinated yeah. by them because I had uh, my. My blade for running. I have my high-heeled leg um, that my friends have named Roxanne, my Saturday <laughs> night leg, um, who is particularly beautiful. And she makes me feel like a woman because yeah, I spent sexy. a couple of years wearing flat trainers all the time, which is fine. But as a girl, you do want to go out in heels yeah. every now and again and, yeah. and feel kind of normal. So I put that on. I kind of pranced around in my high-heeled leg for a while. I have a ski leg. Amazing. I
0: don't know that, ski.
1: And every leg enables me to get back to part of who i was before which has been hugely important to me because i still feel the same victoria as i was before the accident obviously i've learned a huge amount about myself and have a a different perspective on life now but my main characteristics don't change just because you've been through tragic loss and, and trauma um, I'm still strong and sociable and hopefully fun and, and sexy se- well I don't know about that but maybe if I have Roxanne on I can feel a bit sexy and um, and so I did this kind of assembly and, and Kit was brilliant because he, it was about the time of the, the Rio Olympics, he said, yeah, I think mum could probably beat you Usain Bolt, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been very conscious of not bringing my whole sort of disability into my parenting and making them feel... Poor mum. Oh my God, poor mum, you know, she's lost her leg as well and we need to look after her and she's not only have we only got one parent now, but the one parent that we've got left is disabled. Um, And I think I've almost kind of overcompensated and they now think that I can beat Usain Bolt, which I'm probably not sure I could.
0: (laughs) So we're coming to the end. I don't know if this is something that you want to talk about, but I guess a lot of people listening would wonder was, could you imagine falling in love again? Could you imagine letting yourself have a new relationship?
1: Yes, I think I can. I think probably only now I've had to do a huge amount of of work on myself and work through. I didn't want to kind of fall into something for that physical comfort you talk about in your book and, you know, sexual sort of intimacy as being a way of forgetting uh, about the pain and the grief and the, the relief from, from it's the agony a sort of it all. natural response,
0: isn't it, a lot of people have? I
1: think it is. It's you survival, know. isn't it? It's yeah. It's instinctive. And it's, it's a natural human instinct mm. and I think it's very different as well being a widow than being a divorcee and obviously a lot of people that I meet, um, I've got friends, women and men who are divorcees. I lost my husband when we were still very much That's in enough. love, so I hadn't been through the trauma of 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 you know arguments and domestic abuse or falling out of love with with people then I know what real love is and I know what an amazing relationship is so does that make it harder to try and I'm not trying to replace Nico but I do know what makes me happy and yeah I think it will be be difficult to find someone but I I hate to think that I won't be with anybody for the rest of my life because mm. I also know that for me, as a person, I'm not reliant on being with someone for my happiness. But I do love being in a loving relationship, mm. and I know that he would love yeah. me to be in a loving relationship. And going forward, I think it would be amazing to meet someone that could cope with my leg wardrobe and my kickass nature, and yeah, the, the grief that I've been through. But as I said, I've done a huge amount of work on myself and this is me now. I don't want to be defined by what's happened to me. I don't want to be defined by my loss because it's one aspect of my life that I've been through and with your help I think I've worked through it and come to a point that I now am capable of of loving again. I really hope you love again. Thank you.
0: It feels like it's such a, like in a way, learning how to love with Nico, a way of Acknowledging that would be to trust that you can love again.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And that
0: you can dare to love again. Um, And your, you know, one of your greatest strengths is your capacity to love, and that love deserves to be loved. I can't believe how open you've been, and um, it certainly has echoes of our therapy sessions, which feel both. Very powerful and very kind of um, heart-expanding, you know. I feel feel very touched by everything that you've said and extremely grateful that you've come and spoken today.
1: Oh, thank you. I feel like I've had another therapy session, (laughs) judging by the amount of wet tissues I have anyway. Um, No, thank you for all your support and... I know your book is going to help a huge amount of people go through the the pain and the agony of, of grief and I just want to say to people you have to work through it to be able to enjoy life again and don't be scared of it because every time you cry and, and have a moment of grief it helps you take another step forward. So if people would like to
0: find out what the book says, it's Grief Works and um, if you've enjoyed this podcast Please support it by rating it and reviewing it. Thank you very much.